be finding a copy of Scripture and turn to a Psalm 119, 137. 119-137. 137 begins the 18th stanza of our Psalm, which is known as the Sadi section. That's the Torah. It shows us our letter Sadi. It begins each line of this stanza. The letter starts with the way we end the word rats or nuts. Sadi. So you say the T. It's not silent. You have to practice it. I'll probably mispronounce it way more than I ever say it correctly. Remember a few things with me. Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. It has 22 stanzas that correspond to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The Sadi section is the 18th stanza. We have four more to go. Remember also, almost all of the 176 verses in Psalm 119 reference the Word of God through words like law, testimony, ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, word, promise. Our stanza has seven of those nine synonyms listed. The Hebrew word for righteous makes an excellent wordplay on the word or on the letter sadi. You just add a K sound to the end of our letter and you get the Hebrew term for righteousness, sadik. It's like if we wrote a poem in our English alphabet, we would say A is for apples, and we might talk about apples being red and green and all that sort of stuff. B is for bees. See how it fits? It's for bees. Bees are busy buzzing around, things like that. You get the idea. So when we say sadi, and you just add the K to it, sadic, you get a nice uh, built-in word that goes along with this letter. Look at this picture of the type font of Saudi. The other that you saw was written. This is a type font. I think it's interesting. Look, the left side of it looks like a person kneeling down. The right side, they have their hands lifted in praise to the Lord. It's interesting to me that the Hebrews, even as they make their alphabet, they make it uh, in a God word kind of fashion. It looks like a humble worshiper of God. I think that was very, very interesting. Uh, I will admit when I first skimmed through this section of the psalm, and I knew it was going to be mine, I noticed the psalmist calling God righteous in verse 137. Uh, He calls himself small and despised in 141. And I jumped to the conclusion this was about the huge gulf that exists between holy God, and sinful man. Oh, I thought, it's just the gospel. God is holy, I'm not. Jesus is the answer. It's done. Easy. Wrong. I was wrong. See, the best part of expositional preaching is it makes the preacher study the passages in in, in depth in order to accurately teach them. Careful study of this section pointed to a very different understanding than the conclusion to which I jumped. Uh, to as I originally thought. We'll see that play out. Our big idea, our foundational idea is this, Saudi. God and his word are righteous. They're righteous. Read with me. Starting in 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. 
My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We thank you for the worship through song that we have done. We come now to worship through your word. And like the writer of the hymn, we confess that all is vain unless the spirit of the Lord comes down. And we pray this morning, Father, for holy manna to fall. And that we partake of the bread of life today, the living and active Word of God, our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. So God is righteous. What does that mean? We've got to have a good concept of what that means if we're truly going to understand this passage. It's somewhat difficult to define, per se, because it's so wrapped up in the nature of who God is. He's infinitely holy, holy, holy. That is, he's the great other. There's no one like him. He's different. He's immortal, invisible, God-only-wise, says the writer of the hymn. He's unique. Words are truly inadequate to describe God. He's the most glorious and pure being in absolute worth and beauty. And he's infinitely passionate about his glory. Let's stop here and take a quick breath. As a human, when we start talking about God this way, we immediately want to recoil because we think about a person who's consumed with their own glory. So I want you to get a clear picture in your mind of someone that you know who is constantly seeking their own glory. It may be a politician, might be a celebrity you think of, might be somebody you ate Thanksgiving dinner with, somebody who is consumed about their own glory you'll probably be scowling as you think of that person. Why? Because as a human, that kind of egocentrism and seeking after one's own glory and honor is sickening. We need to use the old term vainglory. Human seeking after, seeking after its own glory is vainglory. It's a sinful twisting of a divine attribute applied to a human. Remember, anything that God has or is, the, div- the devil makes a sick and twisted copy of. Prideful conceit or vainglory is one of those sick and twisted copies. God is not vainglorious. He's not like that. He as the creator is, indeed is the most gloriously beautiful, worthy, infinite being. When he seeks his glory, it's glorious, it's wonderful, and it's good for all of creation. Only in his case is that praiseworthy. So God is holy, and he's passionate about his glory. Why all this talk about the holiness and glory of God? Our term is righteousness. Because God in his righteousness and his holiness and his glory, all of those terms are interconnected terms. John Piper, the theologian, will help us here. As he 
thinks about all these things, he says, My conclusion is that God's holiness is his complete and utter uniqueness distinct from all other beings in his infinite and absolute worth and beauty. His behavior is behavior that accords with that infinite worth and beauty, and this overlaps in, with his righteousness, his unwavering commitment to the highest standard imaginable, namely his glory. This means when God acts in a holy way, he is always acting in a righteous way and vice versa. Do you see that? His righteousness is his unwavering commitment to the highest standard imaginable, his glory. When we say God is righteous, we mean that God passionately seeks his glory both in who he is and what it is that he does. He's holy in his righteousness. He's righteous in his holiness. They're interconnected descriptors of the indescribable one. So what, you may say? Why all this time spent, spent defining this attribute? Does it really matter all that much? Well, honestly, it should matter that much to us because it matters infinitely more than we could ever imagine to God. Look in your Bible at uh, Psalm 27. Just over a few pages. Psalm 27. It's that wonderful psalm that David writes about the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And in the fourth stanza, down in verse 4, he says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The New uh, Living Translation says that I may spend time meditating upon the perfections of the Lord. That I can spend time meditating upon the perfections of the Lord. See, we got to wrestle some of these terms out. We have to get in our mind who God is and what it is that he's like. And it's going to take some wrestling. It's going to take some time meditating and thinking about this. This passage that we're talking about today, the Saudi passage, is rooted in God's righteousness. Look at verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord. Everything in this stanza depends upon our understanding and appreciating the weight of this premise. The balance of our time this morning will be talking about the implications of his righteousness upon our lives. We're going to look at the instruction given about three T's, three of them. The truths of the word, the troubles in the world, and the training that we need to incorporate to uh, stand up against these competing forces in our lives. So let's jump in. First, we're going to talk about the truths the psalmist highlights for us. We're just going to walk through this stanza together, and we're going to highlight what's there. At the outset, we see in verse 137 that God's word is right. His word is true. It's straight. It's authentic. As the most glorious, holy, infinitely righteous God, He, and only He, has the authority to declare to His creation what is right. And He declares what is right in keeping with and seeking His own glory. He 
God is the standard. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, whatever anyone else says, what they declare. No one can usurp his authority to demand in all righteousness what he commands and requires of his creatures. Period. We've all had that moment as parents when our kids are questioning and questioning our authority. Why? 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 And finally comes that saying, because I said so. Mark Perna is a self-proclaimed advocate for the younger generation. You can find him on the internet along with all other kinds of stuff. According to Perna, because I said so is no longer for today. Here are his words. We have to understand how people under 40 today were raised. All throughout their lives they've been told that they are unique, special, and important. And Perna says they are. Because they believe this about themselves, they also believe that they have something unique and special and important to bring to their work. They don't want to be cogs in a system. They want to be contributors. Because I said so, no longer is valid. Well, sorry, Perna, that's a cop-out. People over 40 have the same problem. They don't want to be told because I said so. This issue is, is as old as time is, is itself. 4,000 years ago, the book of Job was written about a guy who had this kind of question. Why? 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 I'm going to have an audience with God. I'm going to demand an audience of God. And when he comes and he presents himself to me, then I'm going to ask him all kinds of questions. And he's got some explaining to do. And God appeared to Job. And Job didn't say much. And God said a lot. But God didn't give him answers to why God quizzed him. All right, big boy, up here, front and center. Where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I hung out the stars and the moon? When I gave them their name? Where were you when I created the ostrich, huh? Where were you? Where were you? God never answered Job's question. And honestly... He says to Job and he says to us, because I said so. That's why you went through those things, because I said so. And that's all the answer that Job needed. That's all the answer that we need. His word and his way are right. They're true. They're straight. They're good. Earlier in this same Psalm 119, we saw in verse 68 that God is good and God does good. And when he acts, he works for the good of his people. He's righteous. He's right because he said so, and that's enough. Next, look at verse 138. You've appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. God's word is given in righteousness and faithfulness. Think about the implications of that statement. It's really an amazing thought. His word is given in a way that's true to his passionate commitment to his glory. If his word brings him glory, can you see then that God is passionate about his word? God is passionate about his book because it proclaims his glory. Not only is it given in righteousness, but it's given in faithfulness. God worked to speak through the author as they were carried along by the Spirit of God, says 2 Peter 1.21. Further, the Spirit faithfully spoke through these men and preserved what they wrote for thousands and thousands of years. He's been 
faithful and righteous in giving and preserving his word. Skip down now to verse 140. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. God's word is proven. It's proven. It works. It stands firm. Look at Psalm 12.6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. I love that. Purified seven times. Why seven? Because seven is a, a number of completion and perfection. God's word is pure like silver refined seven times. If you refine silver once, you remove most of the uh, impurities. But by the seventh time, there's no impurities to remove. See, God's word is like that. There's no impurity. It's inerrant. It's true. It contains no impurities whatsoever. It's reliable. It's worthy of our attention and our obedience. God's word is proven. Trustworthy, pure. The final truth given regarding God's word is that it's unchanging. Look back at verse 142. Unchanging. Your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true. Look at 144. Your testimonies are righteous forever. God's word is right for all times. All of them. It's not just an antiquated book of old-fashioned ideas and restrictions that were applicable only in some kind of bygone era in the past. No, no. It's current. It's current for today. It's true as much for today as it will be in the future until the Lord delays His return. It's always going to be true. In our own family, we hear... This idea that it was, this book was, yeah, the Bible is just for the old times. That's not relevant anymore for the modern era. It had customs that were for old times. This modern era, though, wants to revise God's Word, especially in the area of sexual purity, sexual deviance, gender identity, and what constitutes marriage in a family. But God's Word is clear. On all of these things. It's righteous and it's righteous forever. It's not up for debate and it's not up for revision. So, here's what we've got so far. God's word is right. It's given in righteousness and faithfulness. It's proven and it's unchanging. I hope you have a paper copy of the word in front of you. Real live Bible. I understand reading from a screen. But if you just have a screen, grab a paper Bible and look. There's one in front of you. Turn to our passage, Psalm 119, 137 to 44. It's convenient to read the Bible from a screen. I get that. You don't have to try and remember to bring it with you. You don't have to try to remember to take it back home with you. But there's something special about reading the text itself. It changes the way you read. Do your devotions from the Bible, from the written word. It will slow down your reading. It allows you to look back and look up, look forward, look back. And it, as you take in the word, it will become more meaningful to you. Look at our passage. We've talked about verses 137, 138, 140, 
142 and 144. Kind of every other verse. Look what's in between those truths that we've learned about the Word. What's embedded? You have to wonder why they're embedded. Why are these things embedded? These statements have to do with problems, and they're in between the truths that we've discussed. I really think it's a picture for us about what happens if you really get truly serious about God's Word by reading it, living it, trusting it, and abiding in it. If you are, then you and I are going to be faced with difficulties that only can be met by reliance upon God and His Word and having a bone-deep conviction that His Word is right and righteous and faithful and proving and unchanging. So let's look quickly at these three problems. The first is in 139. My foes forget your words. The world ignores and forgets the Word of God purposefully. It has great disdain for the principles and commands set forth by God. And this world will increasingly have no tolerance for you and me who take this book seriously and live our lives by it. Look what the psalmist says when he sees the world forget God in his word. He says, my zeal consumes me. My zeal consumes me. That's an interesting word choice because it comes from Psalm 69.9 where David says he has zeal for your house. Zeal for your house has consumed me. In other words, he wanted to provide a house for God. He wanted to build a temple. Later, the apostles applied this same verse. Zeal for your house consumes me to the Lord Jesus after he had cleared out the temple. And they did rightly apply it to Christ, but not quite in the way that they intended. Zeal for his house did consume him. But see, it wasn't zeal for the temple. It was zeal for the people of God who were going to become the house of God. And so the zeal for the house of God and the zeal for the glory of God moved the Lord Jesus Christ to be obediently Faithful to everything that God had in plan for in his plan for him as he was to give himself as a ransom for the people of God. Do you see that the zeal of the Lord consumed the psalmist? He's concealed, consumed by God's word and his by God and His Word. He's consumed by, driven by, purpose by God as revealed in the Scripture. He had a passion to bring glory to God. That's His zeal, and that should be our zeal too. As you think about your own life, does a zeal for, a passion for, the glory of God consume you? How about me? When faith with temptation, this truth can help you. As you look at that temptation, you can tell yourself, this will not bring glory to God. In fact, it will dishonor God. That will be a big help to you as you face sin. The world may forget or ignore God and His Word. And as we watch them, our passion for God can drive us, like the psalmist here, to follow God and to love His Word more and more and more. 
Do you have that kind of zeal? <laughs> I've had to wrestle all week. Do I? Do I have that kind of zeal? Will we remember that God is passionate about his glory and his word and that we should be too? If we are, trouble will be ours as the world forgets and ignores the word of God. Second, look at verse 141. We see that the world abuses those committed to the world, to the word. I am small and despised. I'm small and despised. My mind runs to... 1 Corinthians 1.26, look at this verse. For consider your calling, says Paul. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. The world typically sees the faithful as low as in intelligence and lacking in sense. We've got to get used to it. They did in Paul's day too. He considered, consider your calling. We're not much. Not really, not by the world standards. We're not much. But God chooses just that kind of person, just us kind of nobodies, to be his people. The world will abuse us because we're committed to following Christ. But we've got to be humble enough to understand that God is paramount in our lives. And our lives, if they don't count for Jesus, they're no value at all. That's the kind of people that God wants. These are the kind of people like the psalmist in the remainder of that verse. I don't forget your precepts. When troubled by abuse from the world, we have to remember God's word and stay true and faithful and committed to it. Okay, our last trouble is in 143. Look at that. Trouble and anguish have found me out. The world will bring trouble and anguish. We will have heartache and pain and disappointment and disease and discouragement and death. I'm puzzled sometimes why we're so surprised at this. Notice I said we. I know better too. But I'm surprised and upended by tragedy too. Jesus promised in John 16, 33, that in this world you will have tribulation. It's a promise. It's guaranteed. And yet, we're surprised. I think it has to do something with the innate sense of wrongness that has happened to the world since the fall of man and sin entering the world and God submit, subjecting the creation to futility. There's something not right about it. It shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't have to bury our loved ones. We shouldn't have to face crippling disease. We shouldn't have to endure a wayward child that walks away from the Lord. If it weren't for sin, we wouldn't have to endure those things. But what did the psalmist do when trouble and anguish found him out? The end of the verse tells us, Your commandments are my delight. When trouble and anguish find you out, you have to lean hard upon the Word of God and the people of God. And you got to hang on and keep hanging on. In the holiday season of 2020, 
I lost both of my parents within three weeks of each other. That was an incredible thing to lose two very significant people in just that short amount of time. I've said over and over again during those days when nothing made sense and everything seemed to be crushing in, it was only this word that made sense. Life would be spinning out of control, but to sit in the presence of the Lord through His word was the only place that brought stability and sanity and hope. Verse 140 is so true. Your promise is well tried. It's true. It's reliable. Trouble and anguish will find you out if it hasn't already. And I urge you now to be in the holy habit of being in the Word so that you can endure the toughest days with the help of the Lord. We've seen four truths about His Word. It's right, it's righteous and faithful, it's proven, it's unchanging. We've seen three troubles we'll face in this world. A world that forgets and ignores the word, of God, uh, the word of God. A world that abuses those committed to the word. And a world that will bring us trouble and anguish. See, there exists a great tension between the righteousness of God, all the truths we know and discover in his word, and the world that's around us that seeks to thwart his ways and purposes. There's always going to be a tension. Let two theologians express that tension for us. Paul described it in Galatians 5 like this. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The New Living Translation says... And these things are against one another, and your choices in this life are never free from this conflict. Choice to live for God and the world will always be in conflict with one another. Martin Luther, the great reformer, penned about this tension in this great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Read the words with me. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, And he goes on to say, for still our ancient foe, in other words, Satan, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. It's an ever-raging tension and a conflict. And the only way we're going to manage to endure it is through a rigorous training program. It will not come from earth. It's going to come from Out of the earth. Look at uh, the last little sentence in our stanza, our Saudi stanza. Give me understanding that I may live. We're going to pull four truths from it really quickly. Give me understanding that I may live. The first part of our training comes from the fact that this statement is a prayer. So pray. Pray always. See, our choices, they're never free from conflict. Trouble, suffering, and anguish anguish will follow us. We're marginalized by the world. And if that's not bad enough, we have an adversary that heaps up additional heat. No one can handle that on their own. It takes divine help. So pray. Pray always. Pray for wisdom to navigate the tension. Next. Give me understanding. Understanding. God has greatly answered this part of the prayer 
of the psalmist just by giving us his completed word. We have the whole counsel of God now. Couple that with the coming of Jesus and you see we have far more revelation than the psalmist ever had and we need to take advantage of it. We take advantage of it by saturating ourselves in the word of God. As we read and we study, we pray, asking the Spirit of God to make His Word alive to us as we learn and we grow. So we pray, we saturate ourselves in the Word, and don't forget too that God also left us as a part of the body with which to be joined so we can weather this tension that exists between truth and trouble. We have to meet regularly with the body. Look at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. The writer of Hebrews says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This body helps stir us. This body encourages us. This body is not to be neglected. Now, I know there are some who, for health reasons, cannot meet with the body. You can ignore what I'm going to say. You get a pass. But, folks, if you're able to meet with the church and you don't, not only are you in sin, but you're robbing the church and yourself by your absence. There's something that happens in this room That cannot be duplicated anywhere else. The very presence of Christ through His Spirit meets with us. In Revelation 1, John turns around to see who's speaking to him. And he sees the Lord Jesus in the midst of lampstands. They're representative of His churches. Jesus is passionate about His churches. He's a guaranteed presence where two or more are gathered in His name. You can't get that from a podcast or a live stream or any other recording of a sermon or a service. Jesus meets with his gathered people. You got to be there. You got to meet with them. We pray. We're in the word. We're meeting regularly. And finally, from this prayer, we see these words, that I may live. That I may live. This part of the prayer has eternal overtones to it. God, in his passion for his glory, loves to save people. It brings him glory. Truly, this prayer is a cry for salvation, to live. All of us are born dead in our sin. God is holy. We are sinners. Jesus is the answer. And what do we do? We repent and believe the gospel. Teach me to live. Make me alive so I can believe the gospel and be saved. This makes us a partaker of the righteousness of God, allowing us to obediently walk in the tension between truth and trouble. And then we keep repenting and believing. See, it's not just an initial thing that we do. It's a thing that we do day by day as we walk as believers. You keep repenting. You keep believing. You keep renewing your mind. You keep repenting of the sins, repenting of the ways of the world. You believe the gospel, believe the word of God. That's how we keep on continuing in our salvation. Folks, let us learn the lesson from Saudi this morning. We have a righteous God who's 
given us a righteous and faithful revelation of himself in his word. We feel a tension between God and our lives in this world as we face troubles and anguish and suffering. And so we have to train by praying, by being in the word, by meeting regularly with the people of God, and by continuously repenting and believing.